Now, I want to welcome everybody back to the Gospel of John. So let's go to God. John's Gospel. We left off back mid-December and uh, did some things in December, again in January, some different things. But now then, it's time to get back into the Gospel of John. And we are going to, we've gotten to the narrative passages. They're going to move just a little more quickly. So let's, uh, let's stand and read our passage today. We're going to only read three of the verses. We're going to go all the way to verse 30, 53, but only going to read these verses, John 7, 37 to 39. If you're our guest today, welcome. Thank you for being here. We do this. We honor the Word of God. We read it. We hear it. We see it with our eyes. It's a triple emphasis, and so we give God the glory. So let's read. The words are on the screen, and let's begin now. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. That phrase, Jesus not being glorified, has has the idea of his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and then breathing on the people to receive the Holy Spirit. So that is very, very important. Father, add your blessing to the preaching and teaching of your word this morning. Help us as we talk about rivers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. I grew up on a river. I was born and raised in Memphis, and uh, we had the big Mississippi uh, in there. When I lived in Peru, I had an opportunity to go to the Amazon one time. More, more than one time, but one time I went and uh, <laughs> I got in a little boat and a guy wanted to take me across the river to take me to a little village on the other side. And so we got on a tributary and then we're riding along in this little boat and then we hit the main, the main uh, shaft, I'll call it, uh, the main uh, flow of the Amazon. And we're going along and as soon as we hit it, it was, the whole, I mean, we almost came out of the boat. He said, hold on. And I said, hold on to what? And then I almost went in. And so, uh, boy, just the flow is amazing. <clears throat> we got a little river here in Des Moines called the Des Moines River, Raccoon River. And it flows through here. In 1993, it wasn't so little, was it? For you that, are, you that were here at that time, it was, it was taken over. It was a really raging river at that time. So rivers, and we're going to talk about that this morning. You might not get that out of the passage, just reading through it, but I think it's the great promise that is given, and we're going to talk about it. <clears throat> so... Uh, we have to answer a question. It says there, on the last day, the great day of the feast, we've got to ask what feast we're talking about. So what we're talking about and what does the last day mean? Well, if you go back to chapter 7, verse 2, it says, the Jews' feast of tabernacles was upon them. The feast of tabernacles that we're talking about here is the third of three major pilgrim feasts for Jewish men and families. There was the feast the the feast of Passover and unleavened bread kind of combined uh, where they celebrated uh, their exodus from Egypt. There was the feast of Pentecost or first fruits. And then just four days after the day of atonement or Yom Kippur, there was the feast of booths or shelters or sometimes called in gathering. This feast of booths began on a Sabbath and it ended on a Sabbath. It was like an eight day Thanksgiving celebration. It was the most, the biggest celebration of the calendar uh, in the Jewish nation. Um, They 
were commemorating the time when they lived in shelters or booths in the wilderness. Uh, and what they would do is all around the city on the outside, all of the empty spaces of the city on the inside and on the roofs of the buildings and houses, they would build these brush arbor type uh, constructions and they would stay there shielding themselves from the sun. And it was to remember what had happened to the children of Israel as they left Egypt. This also marked the end of the harvest season. So it's the feast of ingathering. That is, they finished the harvest. It's the driest part of the year. It hasn't rained for several months, but the harvest has come in and they are just coming together for a tremendous celebration to celebrate God's goodness and the fruitfulness of the land. Everybody was there. You can understand why Jesus' brothers would have said, why don't you go up at this time to the feast in verses three through five, go on up to the feast and show yourself because anybody that's anybody that wants to make a splash, this is when you got to do it. Jesus decided not to do it. He went up secretly. Now this, this uh, festival, this feast, it is described in several places in the Old Testament that I won't go and read right now, but it's also very important to know that by the time Jesus had come on the scene, during the time of the silent years, there were a lot of traditions that were started concerning this, and they have a lot to do with the passage that we're reading. I'm reading to you a, an excerpt from Manners and Customs of the Bible, and here's what it says. In addition to the ceremonies originally prescribed at the institution of the Feast of Tabernacles, there were several others of later date. Among these was, the, get this, the daily drawing of water from the pool of Siloam. Every day of the seven days, a priest went to the pool of Siloam. He filled a golden pitcher with water and he was accompanied by a procession of people and musicians. On returning to the temple, he was welcomed with three blasts from a trumpet. He went around the altar uh, one complete time and he poured water from the golden pitcher into a silver basin and so on. This ceremony was accompanied with songs. They were singing, choirs were singing. Psalm 113 to 118 is what they would have been singing. Shouts were being given concerning this event. Isaiah 12, three says, therefore with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation and the sounds of trumpets. So this was done. They did it one time every day for six days. And on the seventh day, the last and the great day of the feast, guess what? They walked around the altar. They did this whole, pro whole procession seven times. Uh, it was supposed to have represented three very important things. One, the memorial, this water festival remembered the memorial and they memorialized the water that was provided for the children of Israel through the rock. Two times the rock brought forth water in the wilderness for them. Second, it was a symbol of the forthcoming latter rain because not only were they there celebrating the harvest, they were also doing this water festival and praying for the latter rain. Harvest is ended. They need rain for the planting of the future crops. They need, they need some more rain. They're praying for it. And then the third and most important, which comes out in our passage is this whole festival is a representation of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at the coming of the Messiah. So reviewing the whole chapter and getting the picture in our mind, in verses two to five, his brother said, go on up to the feast and show yourself. Jesus didn't do that. He went up without fanfare. He went secretly. This is verses six through 10. Then in the middle of the feast, I'm gonna say Wednesday, he went to the temple and he sat down to teach. As he taught, he wowed them. Uh, the multitudes that were there thought that he was breaking some law. They wanted to seize him, but they couldn't. Uh, 
Then the chief priest and the Pharisees who were there decided, boy, we can't let this go on. Everybody's listening to him. Let's send our security and we will seize him, arrest him, and they'll bring him to us. And so both of those efforts fail. That's verse 30 and 32. Why? Because it wasn't time. Now, I want you to see this. There's three main points I want you to see this morning. And the first one is this, is is that in our passage, Jesus revealed himself or reveals himself there in verses 37 to 39. He did it on the last day, the great day of the feast. Jesus stood, he cried out loud, is anybody thirsty? Come to me and drink. They're in the driest part of the year. It's a regularly dry climate. They're praying for the latter rain. The magnitude of the moment could not have been any greater. The trumpets have blown. The priests have marched around the altar seven times. They have been singing the Psalms and they would have been just finishing with the, uh, with the hiatus and the high point of the whole celebration with Psalm 118 verse 22, which says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It was marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. So here's this festival going on. And right as they get to that part where this is the day that the Lord has made, this is the chief cornerstone and so on. Just as they say it, Jesus stands up and he says, hey, with all this water being poured out and everything, is anybody thirsty? And he got their attention and he said, come to me and drink. Mm. So what was he doing? He was seizing that moment and he was saying, I am that prophesied Messiah that you are celebrating. The second thing is, I want you to see is not only uh, did Jesus come up and reveal himself, but the second thing is people are going to react. People react to that revelation. They always do. That's verses 40 to 53, and the response of people to Jesus and what his claims are and what his preaching is and what his miracles are, it is always mixed. It's always the case. When people are confronted with the gospel of Christ, the answer is always mixed. In Matthew 28, 16 to 17, they were standing looking at at Jesus, the Son of God, with nail prints in his hands, nail prints in his feet, standing there claiming to be the one that has died and risen again. In a few moments, he's going to rise into the heaven. And what did the scripture say? Some believed and some doubted. So much for believing like They said in the story of Lazarus, if somebody comes back from the dead, they'll believe him. (laughs) They didn't believe Jesus, and he did come back from the dead. Mm. So it's always mixed. Pilate, the pagan governor, he even asked the question, what will you do with Jesus? You see, everyone at that time and at our time has to deal with the claims and persons of Christ. And truthfully, some believe, some reject, and some could just care less. What is the reaction? Well, first, verse 40, therefore many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, truly said, truly this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David, where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. So how do they react? Debate, write that down. They debated him. Well, it's like that today. Bring up the subject of Jesus in a way where you're trying to share the truth about him and what's going to result in many cases, a debate. So people are still debating about him. At that time, some of them said he is the prophet. You say, what prophet? Well, Deuteronomy 18, 15, and 18 was historically the one they pointed to, a prophet like Moses 
Not a false prophet, a prophet like Moses. And so some of them thought he was the prophet. We talked about that back early in chapter one, that prophet. Some said he is the Christ. Now they had it right. They didn't have all the, they didn't have all the, the ammunition to convince everyone, but they said he is the Christ. And of course, John 4.42 and 6.69 say the same thing. He is the Christ. But the officials, the ones that mattered, The religious leaders said this, well, he's from Galilee. He's not from the line of David of Judah. He cannot be the Christ because he's from the wrong place. He's from the wrong family and he lives on the wrong side of the track. So they just, they just dismissed him. They said, we can't explain where he learned to teach like this, but forget the idea that he's the Christ. What did they fail to do? They didn't investigate. They didn't, they had a predetermination in their heart. We got to get rid of this guy because he's challenging us and our authority. We got to, that's what they've been doing all the way through, John. And it's going to get worse. Matter of fact, from this point on, it's much more vicious. They're going to try to get rid of Jesus. Well, here's what's interesting. He was born in Bethlehem. They'd have found that out if they'd have checked. And he was the greater son of David. They'd have found that out if he checked. But no, let's just move on. And so what is the next thing? Not only debate, but division. Division, 43 to 46. Jesus came to bring peace in this world. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 says he is the prince of peace. The Bible says in John chapter 3 that he didn't come to condemn but to save. And so people didn't need further condemnation. They needed a savior. He is the prince of peace. Here's what he said that he's offering in John 14, 27. Here's what I offer. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. I'm the prince of peace and I'm offering peace. But I've got, I'm here to tell you this morning that Jesus admits it, he says it, and I'm here to tell you that it's lived out in daily experience of many Christians. Jesus is the most divisive human that has ever set foot on this planet. People divide over who is Jesus. They divide. They did then, they do now. Jesus said it would be that way. You say, really? Luke chapter 12 and verse 51, listen to what Jesus himself says. Do you suppose that I came to bring peace on earth? Well, he did, but it didn't happen. I tell you not at all, but rather division. From now on, five in one house will be divided. Three against two, two against three. Father will be divided against his son and son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and uh, and her mother-in-law. At every teaching, preaching, miracle or prodigy, people were divided into those who believed the man and the message and those who rejected both. I'm here to tell you that Jesus, the man in this message, his miracles, what he did and what he claimed divides people. How many of you know that that's true? How many of you were around for 9-11 and saw the incredible reaction when anybody dared to pray in Jesus' name? You see, Jesus divides. It shouldn't be that way. He came to unite. He came to bring harmony and love and peace and forgiveness and salvation. You know, even the temple security crowd was divided from the priests and Pharisees. I told you back in chapter, in verse 32, that the rulers sent the security guards, their security people from the temple. He says, I want you to go and arrest this guy, get a hold of him and bring him in here. And so they sent him, but when they got there, (laughs) when they asked him in verse 45, why didn't you bring him back? They answered, never a man spoke like this man. (laughs) You know why? Because when Jesus speaks, he speaks beautiful words, wonderful words, wonderful words of life. 
Thy word is truth. Thy word is life. This is what the book of John claims time and time again. They heard his teaching and the grace with which he spoke. These men did it. They couldn't arrest him. Then there's something else. There's debate and there's division. And then there's just flat out dismissal. Verse 47 to 53. The Pharisees simply dismissed the idea that he was any prophet or that he could be the Messiah. They had their reasons. Verse 48 says, no ruler of the Pharisees has been led astray by this. Eh, Nobody important believes this. Um, I cannot help. You know, John wrote this much later than the actual events happened. And I can't help but think John was grinning when he wrote this chapter. You say, why do you say that? Well, because as he's grinning and they're saying he wasn't born in Bethlehem, John says, yes, he was. And they say he was not of the line of David. And they said, he said, yes, he was. And that nobody else had really believed, nobody of importance was believing in him. Well, Nicodemus was already leaning that way. In fact, he's going to make a defense for Jesus right here in this passage. (laughs) So it wasn't true. Then something else they said, the ignorant, lawless multitude is cursed. They said, well, these rabble, these, these, these uneducated, these weirdos from all these different places, they're claiming he's the Christ, he's the prophet. They don't know. What do they know? And they just totally dismissed them. Didn't want to hear any of it. Number three, Nicodemus said, look here, you're judging a man before he speaks for himself. You're breaking our own rules. And they said, bah, he's a Galilean. Their pride, their prejudice, their position of authority was the only thing that mattered. How many of you think that there's a lot of people in positions of authority that the position of authority really is the only thing that matters? It's that way today, and it certainly was that day in the day of Jesus. So I've been sharing this message of the cross of Christ for years, and these are still the reactions. Some believe, some doubt. And some people just want things to stay the way they are. Now, we come to the name of, to the subject, main point today in number three, and that is this, Jesus offers rivers. Let's go back and understand what Jesus was saying. He uses an economy of words to offer them what they are so desperately in need of, what they really, really want. And the first word I want you to write down is the word thirst. Look at verse number 37, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, if anyone thirst. And so I have a question this morning for you. He had a question for them, and that's this. Are you thirsty? What are you thirsty for? Jesus, the consummate communicator, preacher, and teacher at the summit of their celebration. Here they are quoting scriptures, singing psalms, blowing shofars, pouring out the water for the last time of the celebration. And he stood up and he shouted, is anybody thirsty? I can ask you today. Are you thirsty? And if so, what are you thirsty for? Are you thirsty for what Jesus has to offer? Are you just thirsty for what the world has to offer? Everybody's thirsty and hungry for something. We got an ambition for this or for that or for this cause, this idea or for this possession. First John 2.15 says, don't love the world or the things that are in the world. If anybody loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So the world has plenty to offer and many people are thirsty for it. And I'm, I'm, I hate to say it, but many believers talk about heaven, talk about Jesus, but they're hungry for the world. They're hungry for stuff. They're hungry, hungry. They're hungry. They're thirsty. They want to get a hold of a big handful of this world. You know, this idea of spiritual thirst is not new in the scriptures. Uh, Isaiah 55, 1 said, is anybody thirsty? Let them come and drink. Are you hungry? Let them come. Without money, without anything, it's free. Come, buy bread, milk, and fill yourself. He makes it available. The woman at the well of John 4 in verse 10 
You know, she said, hey, give, give me this living water so I don't have to come here and pull this out of this well anymore. Jesus said, look, I want to give you living water to satisfy you to the point that it'll well up in you like a well of a spring of living water that will flow out for eternal life. Amazing. And so that's the way it was. These are the artesian wells of abundant water. I said a moment ago I was born and raised in Memphis, and one of their biggest boasts is the artesian wells that are there to be found. They don't get the water from the Mississippi River, and boy, am I glad for that. It's artesian wells. It bubbles up. They just have, they supply the whole Mid-South with water. And uh, too bad Jackson, Mississippi is so far away because they could sure use some of it. But, but uh, this well water, it just, it just bubbles up. That's what he says is inside this woman. This is such a subject in the Bible. It's over and over. Uh, only those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. That's part of the Sermon on the Mount. Isaiah 44, 2 says this. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Get this. Here's what I'm going to do. This is a promise. This is coming. I'm going to pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground, and I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. Water. Just a beautiful picture. Water. Now, here's a note for you. Maybe you haven't recognized before, but in the scriptures, when we're talking about water for drinking, it has reference to the Holy Spirit. When we're talking about water for cleansing, it has to do with the washing of the water of the word. Cleansing the word of God. Drinking to fulfilling the spirit of God. Here we are talking about drinking. Come, drink, and you will have water flowing from you on the inside. Just as water satisfies thirst and produces fruitfulness, so the Spirit of God satisfies the inner person and enables us to bear fruit. Oh, it's so beautiful. We're going to read this when we get to John 14, 15, 16. We're going to read this about how God chose us. We didn't choose him and he chose us that we would go forth and bear much fruit. And to bear fruit, you've got to have water. You've got to have the Spirit, the Spirit of God. You know, this morning, as we get toward the end of this and I start making some applications, I, I want to just say to you that uh, I've been in the ministry a long time, but I'm still really, 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 really thirsty for something. I'm thirsty for God. To, I'm thirsty for the Holy Spirit to do something among us. I really am weary of a dried-eyed, passionless, churchianity where there are too many efforts are made to produce what only God can produce. I'm thirsty for revival. I'm thirsty for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit's presence that results in these kinds of things, revitalized believers that are not just going through the motions but are surrendered to God's will. And they're ready to pay the cost. I don't want just a packed church building. I'm begging for a demonstration of God's power by his spirit to move us to prayer and to fasting and to seeing sinners saved and lives changed and marriages restored and addicts set free and where repentance becomes a reality and not just a theological point, a reality. The second thing after he says thirst, he uses the word come come and drink. This is not very complicated. The previous chapters are full of this idea of coming. Uh, we go back to Matthew in chapter 11. Come unto me, all you that are labored or heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come, here it's come, drink, believe. 
Chapter five and verse 40, speaking to the religious leaders, he'd been begging them to come to hear the truth, but you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. John six thirty seven. he said it again, all that the father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out, come, move toward God. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Without doubt, many today have come to the Lord for salvation. I just want to pause for a minute. How many of you, how many of you, there's a point in your life when you understood your lost state and you called out to Jesus to save you from your sin and you're confident that he is your Lord and Savior today? Just raise your hand up and say amen. Amen. Give God the glory. He saved you from your sin. Praise the Lord. For whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Oh, the Bible is so clear. And I'm so thankful for all of you and myself that I, I'm just thankful to have my sins covered and forgiven and removed as far as the east is from the west. And that the sea of God's forgetfulness in the bottom of the sea, he doesn't remember my sin anymore. Amen. I'm saved. But that's not what this passage is about. At the time that you asked Jesus to come to save you from your sin, the Holy Spirit came to live in you and he intends to well up in you and flow to other people. When the Holy Spirit comes to live in us, he brings so much more to our lives that wasn't there before. These are all things I found in the scriptures. And I'm not even gonna give you all of the, all of the addresses or the citations, but I just want you to listen to what what the Holy Spirit brings, he brings assurance, he brings grace, he brings love and mission and peace, praise, prayer, preaching, regeneration, sanctification, anointing, baptism, conviction, filling, fruit. He is the gift of God to us and he brings the gifts to us, guidance and indwelling and inspiration and sealing for salvation and he is the life giver and all of these are acts of the Holy Spirit and I haven't included all of them. He lives in us. How many of you name the name of Jesus once again? Put your hand up. I'm a believer in Jesus. Well, I want to tell you something. This Holy Spirit of God with all of these things, assurance and grace and love and peace, praise, prayer, regeneration, sanctification, anointing, conviction, filling, fruitfulness, all of these things came in the person of the Holy Spirit and he lives in you and he lives in me. Oh, we got power capability, ability, and facility that we're not tapping. I'm not. Breaks my heart. So the third thing is this word rivers. We've got the word thirst, come, and rivers. Rivers. With the woman at the well, salvation brought a well springing up and overflowing. Here Jesus stays on this subject of water and he says out of his heart, verse 38, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John clarifies and says he's speaking of the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice when Jesus made this promise, he said rivers, plural, that will flow out of our interior. But folks, God has not made us to be reservoirs. He has made us to be rivers. I got to this point in my sermon preparation and I have a line here. I wish I knew what to say here. And I put stars around it, I underlined it. I, I wish I knew what to stay, say here. I don't have a grasp of everything that's included in that passage of scripture, but I know this, I want those rivers. 
If it's something God wants to give me and it's a life-giving flow that flows to other people, then I want that because I want my life to be a life-giving, life-altering, encouraging, blessing, gospel-transmitting life. I want it to be that kind of life. You know what? Rivers flow and rivers cleanse and rivers refresh and rivers carry us places and rivers bring life. And I want you to follow closely with me and just jot this reference down if you would. Zechariah chapter 14, verse eight, just jot it down there somewhere. Zechariah 14, eight, in that day, I'll explain what day in a moment. In that day, it shall be this. The living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, the Mediterranean, half of them toward the western sea, toward the Dead Sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur, and the Lord shall be king over the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one, and his name one. What day? The millennial day in the kingdom of God when Jesus is ruling from Jerusalem. Listen to verse 16. It shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles during this millennial time. That day, day of the millennium, during that time, we're gonna keep the feast of tabernacles every year. Everybody coming from the whole earth, coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the fact that God has sent rain and blessing on the whole earth. Anybody doesn't come, the passage goes on to say, they're not gonna have any rain. They celebrated this feast, and with the feast, they talked about Zechariah chapter 14, 8 and following. They also read this, Ezekiel chapter 47, and I want you to take your Bibles and do a little work. I want you to go over there and let me read Ezekiel chapter 47, the first few verses to you. This is an amazing, the very first sermon I ever preached in this church, the very first sermon I ever preached was from Ezekiel chapter 47, the first few verses. Now, you want you to listen. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east for the front of the temple faced east and the water was flowing from under the right side of the temple south of the altar. And he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gateway that faces east and there was water running out on the right side. And when the man went out to the east with a line in his hand, he measured 1,000 cubits and he brought me through the waters and the water came up to my ankles." And again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through the waters and the water came up to my knees. And again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through the water and the water came up to my waist. And he measured 1,000 and it was a river. I could not cross for the water was too deep, water in which one must swim and a river that could not be crossed. He said to me, son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. And when I returned there along the bank of the river, there were very many trees on one side and the other. And he said to me, the water flows toward the eastern region, goes down into the valley and enters the sea, the Dead Sea. And when it reaches the sea, its waters are healed. No life in the Dead Sea today. And it shall be that every living thing that moves wherever the rivers go will live. There will be a very great multitude of fish because these waters go there for they will be healed and everything will live wherever the river goes. They read that passage. They sang those Psalms. They shouted out these verses. I just want to say this to you. This is true because Jesus in that millennial temple, Jesus is the very cornerstone. He is the fountain. I want to be drinking from the fountain, don't you? 
And Jesus is the very fountain and it flows right out from under the throne and it's a trickle at the beginning and then it's ankle deep and then it's knee deep and then it's waist deep and then it becomes water to swim in. Verse eight and nine say everywhere the water flows, there is healing, there is life, there is fruitfulness, there is joy. I'm gonna talk about myself for a moment. I'm tired of having a trickle of the Holy Spirit in my life. I want this promise. I want this promise of rivers in my life. I'm not reading anything into this scripture. I'm just reading what it says. If any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It starts as a trickle. I'm tired of just being a trickle. I want a river. You know, today, folks, there are ankle-deep Christians, knee-deep Christians, waist-deep Christians, and Christians that are like a river of blessing, ever-increasing and yielding to the Holy Spirit's power, and I just want to be one of those rivers. I want, I, I want to be a river of healing, a river of help, a river of blessing, a river of gospel truth. I want to be a river of encouragement. I want to be one of these rivers. We need rivers of compassion and rivers of mercy, rivers of love, rivers of grace, rivers of kindness. We need what Jesus promised in verse number 28, verse number 38. I want to ask you a question as we're talking about this Holy Spirit and what he brings. What would happen if this was really happening in my life, in your life? Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. What if in this flow of the Spirit there was love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such there is no law. Those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. You know, folks, I don't know that we need another Bible study, another workshop, another seminar. We need to come thirsty, believing that God wants to give us what he promised that he would give us. You say, are you sure that you're on the right subject? Are you sure that you're talking about the Lord? Listen, Jesus, when he was asked how to pray in Luke chapter 11, his disciples said, hey, would you teach us to pray like John taught his disciples to pray? And he says, okay, when you pray, pray like this. And he gave some of the things from, the, from what is the model prayer. But then when he got a little bit further along, he said this, it's beautiful. He said, oh, look, you need to ask and seek and knock because I want to tell you if an earthly father knows how to give good gifts to his children, how much more. Do you think the heavenly father, get this now, will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him for it? You see, we have prayer lives, but our prayer lives are usually about convenience, creature comforts, and getting things worked out so life is great while we're here. But he would like to pour out the Holy Spirit on us. He, he would like to just let the Spirit of God not just be that thing that keeps us sealed for salvation, but that which flows through us that ends up reaching and healing and helping and encouraging everyone. Rivers, I just got a question for you. We need rivers. We need thirsty believers. We need this poured out in our heart. And folks, I'm just going to say it in simple terms. We need a great river of revival. Revive us again. Oh, Lord, will you not revive us again? Amos cried, will you not revive us again? Will you not even in your wrath remember mercy? Revive us again that we may praise your name. Revival. I just got a question. Is anybody thirsty? What are you thirsty for? 
You just want a bigger handful, a bigger helping of this world, a little bit more of this stuff, a little bit more. Do we just want to get more of this stuff or do we, or, or do we want what God really wants to give us? Are you thirsty for it? Is anybody hungry for God's spirit to be free and act? Do we want our life to be life-giving, healing and helping and gospel-oriented? Is that what we want? What do we want? Let me close by talking about another river, another fountain that makes this fountain possible. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1 says, In that day, speaking of the day of the crucifixion of Christ, in that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. A river, a fountain. (laughs) Oh, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all of their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Dying lamb, dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed ones of God be saved to sin no more. Ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Old song, listen to the last stanza. When this poor, lispering, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song, I will sing thy power to save. I just have to tell you, I'm really thirsty and hungry to see God do something amazing. But it's going to be the result of hungering for it and thirsting for it instead of creating our own kingdoms and our own ideas. Oh, we need a pouring out of the Holy Spirit of God in our life. Wouldn't you like to be kind? Wouldn't you like to be loving? Wouldn't you like to be encouraging? Wouldn't you like to be helpful? Wouldn't you like the fruit of the Spirit to just always be running in your life? Well, if we ask for it. That's what he said. Ask for it. Ask for it. Our Father, I thank you for this passage of Scripture. I pray that you'd have each and every one of us ask ourselves what we're thirsty for. I pray that you'd move in our midst. And I pray, Father, that Des Moines and Central Iowa would be hit with a flood of people that are being filled with the Holy Spirit. That we would become rivers. Lord, I pray in my own life that you just end this trickle and that you'd make me into a river. In Jesus' name, amen.